Okay, so how many of you are going to confess to being the nuts in here? I would admit to that. You got a a spoon and a little note card when you came in this morning. Um, That's kind of linked to what Debbie just did. I'm going to share that with you in just a little while. But before we get into that, we're uh, going to take a look at our text this morning. I'm going to ask you to pray together with me about all the things that God is doing here and that he would focus our minds right now as we look at his word. Would you bow with me? Father, we're going to take some time to look back at things that were written 2,000 years ago. and It's it's hard enough for us, Father, to look at uh, the Declaration of Independence or the Constitution that was just written 200 years ago and and thoroughly comprehend it, let alone look at something written 2,000 years ago. Father, it requires your Holy Spirit to give us ability to see things that we can't see on our own. It requires an understanding of the culture and the setting and in a capacity, Father, to see things through eyes that we, we need your help with. So that's why we ask for eyes to see and ears to hear uh, through the work of your Holy Spirit. We ask that you give us understanding, specifically in the way that this text applies to us personally here today in 2011. So I ask for our church, I ask for the men and women who make up this church, for the children, for students, that we would collectively be able to leave this morning saying that we know more about our God and what His call is upon our life. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. I have found as our church is growing, uh, especially in the last year, let's say, um, a remarkable increase in individuals who have not had church experience previously and therefore um, not necessarily a, a good understanding or even a strong understanding of the Bible and how it's put together. And in, primarily even in little areas like how does the Old Testament fit together with the New Testament? Um, some people who have never been in church before not even knowing there is an Old Testament and a New Testament, just knowing that it's a Bible. Um, Gary has joked lately that we should have a class, and it's, it's not a joke actually, it's a reality, we should have a, a class called Bible 101 and start by saying the first day, this is a Bible, okay, so that we, we're all on the same page and we understand because we'd have to admit in, in our culture today, there are many people who really never open a Bible and are not sure what it is. So it shouldn't be too surprising when individuals come into a church that's growing like this if they haven't had prior church experience Um, that they would find the Bible to be a bit of a mystery. So in the last week even, I had a conversation with an individual who was trying to understand how do you fit together the Old Testament and the New Testament? How do they link? What's the story going on there? And I think it would help all of us to understand that we are surrounded by friends and family members who might be asking that same question, trying to figure out what's the bigger story here? How does this all work together? So if you would think in terms of the Old Testament being like a contract and the New Testament being like a contract, you could say the Old Testament is the old contract in the sense that the word covenant is the same as contract in in legalese. The word testament means covenant. So the Old Testament is really the Old Covenant, and the New Testament is really the New Covenant. What is the covenant? The contract or the covenant that God makes with man. 
Now, when God showed up in the Old Testament and made the contract with the people of Israel, it was at the point when they're being brought out of Egypt. They've been in bondage for hundreds of years under Pharaoh, and God leads them to this area called Mount Sinai. Even if you haven't grown up in church, you're familiar with Cecil B. DeMille's The Ten Commandments. And you've got individuals standing at the base of this mountain, and God begins laying out His commandments on stone. Those laws, those rules, those regulations that the children of Israel received from God are found in the book of Leviticus in the Old Testament. And it spells it out in detail how they were supposed to live. Now here's where they made a mistake. The people of the Old Testament erred in believing that if they followed those rules to the nth degree, if they lived out every single one of those commandments to the fullest extent of their ability, they believed that they would be justified. That was the mistake because what they should have seen is that the law was an end unto itself in that it pointed people to the need for justification through Jesus. So the Old Testament, the old contract, was meant by God to point people to look forward to say, I can't live up to all these rules, all these commandments, all these regulations, not just the Big Ten, but the 600 other regulations that went with them. You want some good nighttime reading? Read the book of Leviticus sometime. It'll help you sleep really well. There is a lot of detail about how they were to live out every single day of their life. And the idea behind it was to point them to the need for justification because we can't live perfect. We're fallen people, although we're supposed to try to. So that was their error in looking at this old covenant and thinking that it was going to lead them to justification. Paul realized this. Look up on the screen with me at Galatians 3.24. He's speaking of the Old Testament here. The law, meaning the Old Testament, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith, understanding that the Old Testament was pointing us forward to Jesus. So the Old Covenant is unable to justify the old contract. It merely pointed out that we were a fallen people and we couldn't live up to God's high standard. However, it served this purpose. It pointed people towards the Savior. So God, 600 years before Jesus was born, spoke through a man by the name of Jeremiah to help people understand this. And he spoke specifically 600 years before Jesus that there was a time when a new covenant would be put in place. Look with me on the screen. It's kind of a long couple verses here, but it'll help you contextualize this. Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out to the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and on their heart, and I will write it, and I will be their God. Now this is new information, because up to this point, they've got the laws written on stone. But according to that promise, it's going to be written on your heart, meaning the Holy Spirit indwelling you, in which you will know the things to do and not to do. 
So this passage, if you read it later today, Jeremiah 31, you'll see that it eventually leads into God declaring that this new covenant is going to bring about complete forgiveness. Not just a covering over by animal sacrifice, but a complete wiping away of iniquity. So that's the purpose of the Old Testament. Not that it is the final hope, but that it points the way to the final hope. So this thing called the New Covenant is superior, the New Testament, to the Old Testament in that it explains Jesus and this New Covenant. So in your notes this morning, tell me that they were in your bulletin, first of all, because we didn't do it in the 9 o'clock service. Do you have them? Oh, great. I, I kept saying that, look in your notes this morning, and people were giving me blank looks and It's because the pastor left him on the photocopier for the 9 o'clock service. So in your notes you see this morning this thing called the New Covenant, and I I show you how it's superior to the Old Covenant. We're not going to get into that. That's just for you to read later today. And it explains all the ways that the New Testament is superior in this new promise. So that's all background material for what we're going to look at now with John 3.22 as we finish up and close out chapter 3. So you understand that context in which John is speaking to his disciples, and meaning John the Baptist. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to John chapter 3 and verse 22, and we'll get rolling along with this. John 3.22, you also see it on the screen. After these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea, and there he was spending time with them and baptizing. Well, it says after these things, after what things? Where has he been? Well, for the last 11 weeks, we've been looking at where Jesus was at. First, he was on the Jordan River. Then he went into the city of Jerusalem. He cleaned the temple out. Remember that? And then he went to Passover. And then he had this conversation with the attorney by the name of Nicodemus. So these are the things. After those things, Jesus leaves the city of Jerusalem, and he goes out to what's called the land of Judea. Well, Jerusalem is in Judea, so that's kind of confusing. But this was a way of saying the countryside. So Jesus left the city and went out into the obscure regions, the countryside in the land of Judea. And this is where he's at. And what's he doing while he's there? He's spending time with his guys. He's got the disciples with him, and he's building into them. The word that's actually used is the word diatribo. It's where we get the English word diatribe, meaning a lengthy period of time. So diatribo, he's investing in them. And during this period of time, he's preaching. And there's people being baptized. But I can't overlook this part that he spent time with his men, with those disciples, making disciples. That's the best form of discipleship, the one-on-one contact. So we see that Jesus didn't actually personally baptize people. I put that in your notes this morning also. If you move forward just a few verses to chapter 4 and verse 1, you'll see this up on the screen. The Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John. Verse 2, we get a commentary. Although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, he left Judea and went away again into Galilee. So we get this understanding that Jesus is baptizing and John the Baptist at the same time. Look with me at verse 23. John also was baptizing in Anon near Salim because there was much water there, and people were coming and were being baptized. Verse 24, for John had not yet been thrown into prison. You begin to see the eyewitness detail that we get here. First of all, John the disciple who's writing this, eyewitness says there's a lot of water there. And so people are coming to this area where this big spring is at. 
So even though Jesus is growing in popularity and gaining massive crowds, John also has a significant number of people coming to be baptized. But then we get this detail. John's not yet been thrown into prison. Now, why would he throw that in there? It's obvious John's not in prison or he couldn't be baptizing people. Why did we need to know that? This is an insight to inform us about a timeline that John wanted us to understand. Now remember, when John wrote this book, he's 96 years of age, somewhere in his 90s, looking back to the time when he's in his 20s. Matthew, Mark, and Luke have been around for decades, tens of years. They have been in circulation already. And so John's trying to establish a timeline for us because Matthew, Mark, and Luke pick up on the life of Jesus after John's gone to prison. So what we're finding out here is that John's writing about a period of time that we have no other record of information about. Jesus is doing ministry. John's doing ministry at the same time. So here's an example of, from Matthew 4.12. Now when Jesus heard that John had been taken into custody, he withdrew into Galilee. That's the beginning of the record of Jesus' work in Matthew. John's writing to us specifically to clarify a timeline so we're not going to be confused. How did Jesus end up baptizing and John end up baptizing? Because the other three didn't write about it. So he wants you to understand there's a clear timeline here. That puts it in perspective for us. So let's go to verse 25. Now in the midst of this, therefore, there arose a discussion on the part of John's disciples with a Jew about purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing, and all are coming to him. I remember up to this point, John the Baptist has been incredibly popular. Not just small numbers of people coming out to him. As a matter of fact, we find in Mark 1.4, all the country of Judea was going out to John. As a matter of fact, he clarifies it even further. He says the entire city of Jerusalem went out to see John to be baptized by him and to hear his preaching. So he's been incredibly popular, but that's changing. All of a sudden, crowds are now flocking to Jesus, and everything is shifting. Jesus is moving to the forefront. John is fading from the scene. And there arose a discussion, we're told, right there in the text. The word that's actually used there is argument. The word is zetesis. And it means searching, a dispute. They were searching for the answers, and there arose a fight. So John's guys are in the midst of an argument over doctrine. And the doctrine is about this personal ceremonial cleansing. We see that very clearly. There arose a discussion on the part of John's disciples with a Jew about purification. So they're arguing about the Old Covenant stuff, the Old Testament the cleansing, which was very important to the Jews. John is focused on the new covenant, the arrival of the king and Jesus. And his disciples are stuck. So they get into an argument with a Jew, and apparently it starts with the issue over purification, and it descends into an argument about Jesus versus John. And it begins this fight because the disciples of John are confused how can he be doing this and you're doing this and everyone's going to him? Whose baptism is valid? Who should we be following? So John's disciples returned to him frustrated 
and upset. So look at how they describe it. Rabbi, he who was with you, meaning they won't even call him by his name, Jesus. They're just referring to him in the third person. Jesus has more business than we do. His church is getting bigger than our church. What are you going to do about it? That's their complaint. That's why they're coming to him. They've seen John baptize Jesus. So it's very natural in their humanness to think, John must be superior to Jesus. Jesus submitted to him. He baptized Jesus. And they're not understanding it. They're not being able to put the pieces together. And they feel that their rabbi is being obscured by Jesus. He's getting all the attention. So that's why they say, he's baptizing and all are coming to him. So they obviously feel there's a deeper issue here going on. Have we aligned ourselves with the wrong guy? Is he not more important than this one? So Jesus is going to be clarified by John because John's guys are envious and they're starting to see Jesus as a competitor. Can you imagine that? It's incredible. They miss the whole purpose of John standing on the river and saying, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. They're thinking that he's superior to them. So he's going to build a case in which he shows that he is not superior to Jesus. And his whole purpose is to point people to Jesus. So I suspect what's going on here is you're seeing a reflection of their heart. They're starting to feel like we're second class. Those guys who decided to follow Jesus, they made the right choice. And you're starting to see their humanness come out. So they don't see God's purposes because they're so clouded with their own focus of wanting John to be more popular than Jesus that they miss the purpose of why he's there in the first place. Now, I don't know how you picture John the Baptist. I've you know, grown up in the church. I came to Christ when I was 14 years of age. I've always looked at John as this really earthy guy with this huge booming voice. You know, he's wearing leather. He's got sackcloth on him. He rips the heads off locusts and eat them. He's dumping honey down his throat. He's a man of the wilderness. And I picture him with this huge booming voice And up till this study, I'd always thought of him as a guy with a scowling face like a guard dog, one who is always trying to protect Jesus. But when I look at this text closely, I see this is a man of great contentment, and he's just filled with joy. You're going to see that coming out right now. Verse 27, John answered and said, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given him from heaven. You yourselves are my witnesses that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent ahead of him. So he's beginning to clarify his role because of this. Disciples in the first century, when they aligned themselves with a rabbi, they were incredibly loyal to him. They would give their life for their rabbi. So I don't think John's chastising these guys. I think he's speaking in love to them because they're very loyal to him. They want to do anything for him. But he gives us an incredibly humble response. You can receive nothing unless it's given to you from God. That's why he plays it out. A man can receive nothing unless it's been given him from heaven. So here's a simple biblical truth for you to remember today. Every single thing that you possess from all your material goods to the position you might hold in whatever environment you work in, even your opportunities to serve in ministry have been given to you from God. Everything that we have, including ministry. 
I remind people of this constantly. Myself as a pastor of this church, I could be taken out in a heartbeat if God's choice was to do so. It's God who is growing new hope, not Mark. It's not me who should be magnified. It's Jesus. So this is not something to which I'm entitled to. John's saying the same thing. I'm not entitled to this. Everything that we have comes from God above. He's given it to us. So guys, there's no place for jealousy whatsoever. That's why he says, I'm not the Christ. I'm not the Christ. I've been sent ahead of him. So John shows no jealousy whatsoever. And he never took his eye off the ball. The measure of a successful church, the measure of a successful ministry is not how many people follow me, it's how many people follow Jesus and how many people are pointed to Him and there's a second component to that, how we follow Jesus in the completeness of understanding what Scripture says. We see a great example of that in Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians, we see that this church in Corinth, which is a new church like us, Some individuals started putting banners up of their favorite scriptural heroes. Some guys hung a banner from the ceiling that said Apollos. And some hang a banner from the ceiling that said Peter. And some hang a banner from the ceiling that said Paul. And some of the guys said, I'm of Paul. I follow what Paul teaches. Others stood under Peter's banner and said, I'm of Peter. I follow what Peter teaches. Others stood under Apollos' banner and said, no, I'm of Apollos. He's superior. So Paul wrote this scathing rebuke to them so that they would understand Jesus hasn't been subdivided into parts. Look with me on the screen, 1 Corinthians 1.13. Has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptized into the name of Paul? So that we understand it's all about one purpose, one focus, the advancement of the kingdom for the sake of Christ. So in verse 29, we begin to see this joy coming out of John. Look with me, because he gets such joy in the fulfillment of what God's called him to do. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. He's heavy with joy. It seems like a really odd statement to make in the midst of a discussion about baptism, doesn't it? He's talking about purification, and all of a sudden, John does this hard shift, and he starts talking about a wedding. Why is he doing that? Well, the image of a bridegroom and a wedding and a marriage relationship was so powerful to the people of Israel, especially in the Old Testament frame of mind. They understood that God saw himself as the husband and Israel as the wife or the bride and that God invited them into a relationship with him. The same way that he sees the church today. He calls us the bride of Christ, that we've been set apart to be Christ's own special people for his calling. Here's a representation of that from Isaiah. This is the Old Testament, Isaiah 54.5. This is God speaking. For your husband is your maker, whose name is the Lord of hosts, and your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel, who is called the God of all the earth. For the Lord has called you like a wife. So John's taking them back to this Old Testament way of thinking in that they've got this relationship to God as their father, but also as the husband in an analogy-type setting. So when John says he's the friend of the bridegroom, he's talking about being the best man. You've been in a wedding and you've seen the best man who stands on the stage and he's about ready to hand the ring off to the groom. 
He's not competing with a groom trying to bump him out of the way and say, no, I'm going to marry this girl and put the ring on her finger. That's not the role of the best man. As a matter of fact, that's what the friend of the bridegroom is. And here's his responsibility. In an ancient wedding in the first century, the friend of the bridegroom, the best man, was to lead the bridal party to the bride's house, carrying torches in the evening, receiving her and escorting her to the place where the wedding would take place and presenting her to the groom. So once the bride and the groom had joined hands and the ceremony started, the friend of the bridegroom stepped out of the way. He was no longer the most important person. So John's saying, I'm the friend of the bridegroom. You guys understand? I'm the one stepping out of the way. How foolish would that be for me to compete with a groom? He's the one that gives full joy. I love to hear his voice. He's in the room. So I'm not distressed. I'm excited. I'm elated. That's the way it's actually translated. John's got all this joy. He's delighted, greatly delighted. Here's the word that he actually uses when it says rejoices greatly. Kara, cheerfulness, calm delight, gladness, times greatly, times being exceedingly joyful. He's megas happy. He's got all this joy. He says he uses the word great because it's the word megas. I'm just full of joy. And he says, so that this joy of mine can be made full, I'm hearing his voice. Why? So that Jesus can receive the full attention. So that there's no distractions, it's all about them. So now he stops and he says, but wait, there's more. This is like a nighttime commercial. Look at the next part, verse 30. He must increase, but I must decrease. You think it's bad now, guys? I'm going to continue to fade out of the scene. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. All, He who is of the earth is from the earth and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. Incredible humility. Have you ever been in a position where you're responsible to speak and teach to thousands of people? And in John's case, tens of thousands of people and then have to fade out of the scene and become non-existent. You know what that's like for John in this setting. He's there to make Jesus known. He's got one purpose, so this incredible humility when he's gathered all these people to himself, and now he has to send them out to follow Jesus. This is the way Leon Morris, who's a commentator, a theologian, summed it up. I want you to see his quote. It is not particularly easy in this world to gather followers about one for a serious purpose. But when they are gathered, it is infinitely harder to detach them and firmly insist that they go after another. It is the measure of John's greatness that he did just that. So he says, he who comes from above is above all. And as a matter of fact, he says it twice just to make sure they got it. Jesus is God. He's from above. He gets everything. So he contrasts it with himself by saying, I'm of the earth, and I speak of the things of the earth, and I point you towards the king. So John was bold. He was powerful. He's persuasive. Yet, he's just a man. Jesus is God. So let's look at verse 32. What he has seen and heard, of that he testifies, and no one receives his testimony. He who has received his testimony has set his seal to this, that God is true. 
You don't have to work in the world of newspapers or magazines to know that in the world of journalism, your sources are everything. You want to be able to quote sources. You want reliable sources. In this context, what John is saying, Jesus is the source of all the information. He's not second-hand information. He's first person. What he has seen with his own eyes, what he has heard with his own ears, that's what he speaks of. That's what he's testifying. It's not second-hand information. If you go back just a few verses in chapter 3 and look at verse 11, you see Jesus saying that to Nicodemus. We speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen. Jesus speaking was so powerful so persuasive for people that even his enemies, those who came to arrest him, had things to say about how he speaks. Look with me on the screen, John seven forty six. Never has a man spoken the way this man speaks. That's said by soldiers who came to arrest him, who were blown away by the things that Jesus had to say. So John says in response to that, he's who's received these things that God had to say, they set their seal to it. This is an ancient phrase, and it means that when a king wore a ring on his finger, his signet ring, when he agreed with something, he would set his ring into the soft wax, putting his seal upon a document, saying, I sign off on this contract. I buy into what it says. Today, in our language, we would say, I sign off on that. I'll put my name to that. So that's what John is emphasizing here. You believe in these things. You're, you're signing off and setting your seal to these things of God. Do you know that Jesus always spoke in 100% complete harmony with God the Father? There's nothing that Jesus ever said that was contrary to the things that God said in the Old Testament. So to reject Jesus is to call God a liar, that's what Scripture says specifically. I want to show you this on the screen so you understand the next verse, verse 34. But look with me first at 1 John 5.10. The one who believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. The one who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has given concerning his Son. And the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. So that's why John says what he does next in verse 34. For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Those two verses right there would explain to anyone why it's taken us 11 weeks just to get to the end of chapter 3. There is so much meat here. Look at what John just said. For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God. Right away he's saying, Jesus has been sent from God, and he speaks for God. And if you're saying that he doesn't, you're calling God a liar. And Jesus is so powerful that he has the Spirit without measure. Now, why did John tell us that, especially the first century individuals? Because they knew the Old Testament. And the Old Covenant said that when Messiah arrives, when he's present, he will be covered with the power of the sevenfold nature of the Holy Spirit. Let me show you this on the screen. It comes from Isaiah 11, verse 2. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. Understand, this is prophecy. 
This is written hundreds of years before Jesus, looking forward in time. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The Spirit of wisdom, count them up. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding, two. The Spirit of counsel, three. And strength, four. The Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And the first one was the Spirit of the Lord. So you've got the sevenfold Spirit. When you look at a Jewish menorah at Christmas time and you see the seven candlesticks that come up, that's a representation for the Jewish people of the sevenfold Spirit of God. They're looking at it and they don't even know they're looking at it. And it's pointing forward to Jesus, saying, This one, when he comes, is going to be covered with the Spirit of God. So when John baptized him, and we learned about this a few weeks ago, John baptized Jesus and he came up out of the water and John said I see the Spirit of God descending upon him he's talking about this look with me on the screen John 1 John testified saying I have seen the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven and he remained on him go over to Colossians 2 9 in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form what's the fullness of deity the sevenfold Spirit of God being poured out on Jesus. You don't have all seven characteristics of the Holy Spirit. You might have the Spirit of knowledge. You might have the Spirit of wisdom. But only Jesus had all seven of the characteristics. So John's got this huge theological statement that he makes. First of all, everything Jesus says is from God above. He's covered in the Holy Spirit. And then he wraps it up by saying, Everything that Jesus has in his hands is everything that God has given him. This is profound. Look with me at Hebrews 1.1. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things through whom he also made the world. So Jesus controls all of creation all of the created order. Now move forward to 1 Peter 3.22. At the right hand of God, meaning Jesus, at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. So put this together with me. Jesus speaks only the things from God. He is not a liar. He only speaks what God speaks. God only speaks what Jesus speaks. They're one and the same. He's covered in the fullness of the Holy Spirit. And he controls not only the created order, but also angels, majesties, principalities, and powers. Everything is subjected to Jesus. You see why this is such a huge, theologically profound statement that John has just made? He's taken these guys who are so petty and concerned about the growth of their little clique group that John is taking them and refocusing and saying, guys, it's much, much bigger than you. You aren't getting it. This one is in whom all the fullness of deity dwells. I'm not the Christ. He is. And he's taken them to school. And not long after this, John's beheaded. Herod arrests him, throws him in prison, cuts his head off. But before that happens, he leaves us with one profound, hauntingly statement. Look with me up on the screen at verse 36. This is where we end it today. He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. The first thing I want you to see is if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, is that you have a promise right there. It's a present possession, not a future 
but a promise right now in the present saying that you have eternal life if you name the name of Jesus. Not merely a future hope, a present reality. Look with me at John 5.24 on the screen. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life. So you, if you name the name of Jesus, you possess eternal life. Yes, you will face physical death someday unless God comes first to take us home. But you have this promise. You possess eternal life if you name the name of Jesus Christ. Now, I want you to see this huge juxtaposition because he says, you who name the name of Christ, you got life. But what if you don't? You got the wrath of God abiding on you. That's how he says it. The wrath of God continually abides on those who refuse to believe in Jesus, meaning they're already in a state of condemnation. This abiding thing has a specific word. The word is meno in Greek. Look at the definition for it. A present continuance enduring. The wrath of God is present, it's continuing, and it's enduring. It won't go away. God cannot wink at sin. He doesn't turn His back on it. I want you to see this definition. It's a quote by an individual who wrote about the wrath of God. I have no idea who wrote it. It's unknown to me, but it's highly accurate. Look at this quote. Wrath is the settled displeasure of God against sin. It is the divine allergy to moral evil, the reaction of righteousness to unrighteousness. God is neither easily angered nor vindictive, but by His very nature, He is unalterably committed to opposing and judging all disobedience. The moral laws of God cannot be rejected by God any more than He can change the physical laws of the universe. Your God does not wink at sin. That's why John wrote, His wrath abides. It's meno. It continues and continues until someone names the name of Jesus. So what you've seen this morning is John, on his exit, built a case for the superiority of Christ. Here's the four areas I see it specifically in. The one who comes from above is superior to all. The one who accepts his testimony, meaning those of you who have named the name of Christ, have confirmed that God is truthful. The one who believes in the Son has eternal life. The one who rejects the Son will not see life, but God's wrath abides on him. Four huge points coming out of this. So as I read this text, I'm impressed with this. First of all, John's preoccupation right up to the point of his death was to make Christ known, not himself, but to advance the work of the kingdom, not to promote John. Second of all, you ever heard the phrase, it's hard for a guard dog to smile? Think about that for a minute. If John is truly the guard dog of Jesus, he's the one out there defending him, promoting him. It is hard for a guard dog to smile. But in the midst of this setting, John found great joy. Even though these guys are bringing the petty arguments to him, my joy is full. The groom has arrived. I hear his voice. I'm not stepping in to take his bride away from him. I'm just full of joy. Even in the midst of challenging circumstances. 
And here's the last one. Collectively, we as the church of Jesus Christ have one very clear directive to advance the kingdom. That's why personally I'm so excited about doing this third service thing because we don't know what God's going to do through it. Just like when we went from 11 o'clock service only having one and launched a 915 service a year and a half ago. We didn't know that God was going to fill that one up too. Now I believe that God's going to do the same thing through the third service. So here's why you haven't heard from me talk about it a whole lot. Gary's talked about it. Michael's talked about it. Debbie's talked about it. I want you to hear my heart on this. First of all, we believe God is telling us to do this with a third service. For whatever reason He chooses to do with it, we don't know. Whether there's 30 people to start with it or 300, I have no idea. In the context of the setting that we're going to be in, though, on Saturday night services, after I teach a message like this, we're going to open it up to Q&A. 10 to 15 minutes of just talking back and forth about what we just heard. Because there are many individuals coming to our church who need to be able to interact with questions about the things they're hearing. Some who are just seeking it out for the first time. Others who have not been able to make sense. How does the Old Testament fit with the New Testament? So in that sense, we believe God's really calling us to do this. It's not about a numbers thing. It's about responding to what we believe God's doing among us. So we've got this little spoon thing you got this morning. And this has got a a response opportunity for you. It's not just for the third service. It's for all three. So if you feel in the service that you choose to be part of, whether it's the 11 or the 915 or the new Saturday night one, I'd like you to take this spoon and consider, not under any pressure whatsoever, if you can serve in the area of hospitality or in the area of greeting people at the door or in children's ministry or in technology working up in the sound booth or in communion preparation. Those are major areas of a service where we could use help. So if you feel that God's pressing upon you to be involved in one of those areas, go ahead and check one of those off and write your name and phone number on the back and we'll have somebody contact you. In the meantime, here's what I want to ask you to do. Really be praying that God would show himself powerful in the midst of New Hope, in the midst of our church, despite what we think should be going on, but that God would be preeminent, that his focus would be our purpose. Just like John's disciples, I think it's really easy for us to get off track. You know, when you look at the early exposure of the disciples to Jesus' ministry, it's clear they were in it for themselves. When they first jumped in, they thought they were going to gain great things out of it. And so they were constantly trying to self-promote. It took them a while to understand this is all about the king and what he wants to do. So that's my prayer for each of us, that we'd be bold to act that way on behalf of God. Would you join me in that? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we ask you that this morning that um, you would just, first of all, be preeminent in everything we do in the week ahead of us. Uh, The room's just filled with individuals who are going to be getting out car keys in a minute, God, and we're going to be jumping into our own agenda and the things that we need to do. I ask, Father, as we hit the streets tomorrow, going to work or school, wherever we have to carry out our daily activities, that you would remind us of this principle that we need to make Jesus first in everything. God, we'd be content with just remembering that, but I ask that you'd help burn these thoughts into our mind. That we would never be so ambitious that we chase after our own self-motives, but rather what you're all about. 
So God, I ask that you would do that in the midst of our church, that you allow us to be bold on behalf of your kingdom in order to advance it for Jesus' sake. It's in his name we ask this. Amen. Have a great week.